My mother-in-law has been doing something really incredible and beautiful this past year. She is reading chronologically through the Bible. Day by day, she reads the stories that make up our scripture. Now, because she also has a good German work ethic, she accompanies the reading of scripture with another reading that gives the historical, cultural, political context to the scripture that she just read. She has loved the insight that reading the Bible this way has given her. But there have also been times that she has wondered, why is this even in here? Because the Bible contains parts and passages that are confounding and confusing. They are mystifying, and some, honestly, are just plain offensive. And then I read the passage for today. And I couldn't help but think of this passage as one of a bygone era, where the patriarchy demanded that women's security was tied to their connection to another man. But I wonder what this passage has to tell us about how to be people living into the mystery of the resurrection to come. And I wonder what this passage has to tell us about what it means to live as people of the resurrection here and now. The scripture reading today is from the book of Luke. Some Sadducees, those who say there is no resurrection, came to him and asked him a question. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, leaving a wife but no children, the man shall marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first married and died childless. Then the second and the third married her, and so in the same way all seven died childless. Finally, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had married her. Jesus said to them, those who belong to this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy of a place in that age and in the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage. Indeed, they cannot die anymore because they are like angels and are children of God, being children of the resurrection. And the fact that the dead are raised, Moses himself showed in the story about the bush, where he speaks of the Lord as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now he is God, not of the dead, but of the living, for to him all of them are alive. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Amen. Amen. Would you please pray with me? Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be glorified in your sight. For you, O God, are our rock, and you are our redeemer. Amen. When reading this passage, I'm struck by its characteristic nature in time and in place. Like reading many things from long ago, there is much that is unfamiliar and even ridiculous to us 
in this text. And the Sadducees honestly make it that way, hyperbolically taking their example of this unnamed woman to an extreme, having her not marry one brother, but marry seven. But the practice itself seems bizarre to us. Now, I'm not going to ask you to confess who of you out there would marry your brother-in-law if given the chance. But I know for myself, as much as I love and adore my brother-in-law, there is no way that I would want to be joined to him in marriage if, heaven forbid, something was to happen to my husband, Dan. But this ancient Jewish, Jewish practice was a way to protect widows one of the most vulnerable populations in society at that time, who, on the death of their husbands, would be left without property or resources or protection. Now, while we understand the misogyny that's intertwined with men having sole access to resources, the Jewish practice in that time and place was one of compassion, ensuring that these women were not abandoned but cared for. If the woman was to get pregnant once the brother-in-law, now husband, would raise the child not as his own, but as his brother's child, paying respect to the loved one who'd pass, and also enabling his brother to live on. See, ancient Judaism didn't have the concept of the resurrection that we do now. But in ancient Jewish belief, we lived on through our children. Giving this child the name of the deceased and raising him or her in that way ensured that the departed's legacy continued. But what does this acronistic text have to say to us here and now? My grandmother, my mom's mom, Catherine, passed away two springs ago. And I remember getting the call and having to rush out of youth group, leaving Carolyn all alone to do yoga with some junior hires in our all-purpose room. And I remember driving late into that evening, trying to make it in time before she passed. She died peacefully with her rosary clasped in her hands because my grandmother was a strict Roman Catholic. Living in Baltimore in the 1950s, she attended Mass almost daily, going to one of the little local parishes that was on the street corner by their home. One Sunday after services, she calls her priest horrified. My Uncle Chuck had gotten sick after partaking in the Eucharistic feast, and now their sidewalk was splattered with the body of Christ. Her priest assured her that it would be fine, that she could just wash it away with a garden hose, that the holiness had already been absorbed. See, she was a woman of the letter of the law. And so, at her funeral, in keeping with her wishes and memory, my family all abstained from taking communion, as none of us are practicing Catholics. But following the service, her jolly priest came up to my husband Dan and me, remarking on us not partaking in the Eucharistic feast and saying that he wished that we had, that it would have been a beautiful moment for us to celebrate full communion. I told him about how my grandmother would have probably rolled in her grave if she had known that we had taken 
As a pastor, I've heard comments like this before. I've heard comments like this around a couple's choice at a wedding to include something that's maybe not important to them at all, but something that's important to their family. I've heard things like this around holiday plans that take into account traditions that might not be your own. And when I met with these stories, I reply with some comment about, oh, how lovely it is that that person is honored, or how gracious it is to include that which is not familiar to you because you care for those for whom it is important. But this priest's response was one of the most beautiful things I've ever heard. He said, where your grandmother is, she knows better now. This is exactly what Jesus is talking about with the Sadducees. How the confining, limiting ways that we think of this world will fade away when we live as people of the resurrection. My response to the priest reflects my own misguided belief that death would not transform my law-abiding grandmother. That she would be the same strict rule follower in death that she was in life. That the barriers, the divisions of this world, those things that confine and restrict wouldn't fade away, making room for God's abundant love. Now, even as someone who is theologically trained, I do not know what happens when we die. None of us really do. And as someone who appreciates science, I'm not a big believer in the bodily resurrection, some zombie-like apocalypse, maybe a cheery version of the walking dead that excludes all those people who've been cremated because I don't really even understand how that would work with the bodily resurrection. But it is important for Jesus in this passage and in other places that the resurrection was about bodies, about the physical. I don't know if Jesus thought we'd all physically raise from the dead to live eternally in glory someday, or if Jesus, who modeled the resurrection for us, asking doubting Thomas to touch his side where the spear had stabbed him during his crucifixion, and where, with the disciples, resurrected Jesus cooks and eats a beachside breakfast. Because the physical is important. But did these things actually happen? I don't know for sure. But what I do know is that these stories point to our physical selves as important, not inferior to our spiritual or intellectual selves. These bodies, these bodies that we find ourselves in, are important not because they are what will transport us to the great by and by someday. Though maybe they will. I would love to be surprised by God after all. But that these bodies are important because they are the vehicles by which we live now as God's people of the resurrection. So while we live into the wonder and the mystery of what is next, I'm more interested and how we just don't wait for that day to come sometime, to be children of the resurrection, but how we live now, 
practicing what we pray every single Sunday when we say, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. How do we live body, mind, and spirit as those children of the resurrection here and now? And again, this text tells us. It tells us what it means to be children of the resurrection. The Sadducees and Jesus find themselves in a typical trope, the division between law and gospel. And my Lutheran husband, Dan, loved the fact that I was preaching a little bit of my sermon on law and gospel, two fundamental Lutheran tenets. But, but we find ourselves there. We find ourselves in this place with Jesus and the Sadducees. And we find ourselves in this place often within our own lives as well. See, so often we attempt to live holy lives, but how often do we get lost in the way of doing and in our doing become self-righteous? That we actually miss the point of being God's boundary-breaking people, where we are freed and transformed by God's love, where our worthiness is not tied to our partner or our procreative ability as might have been a concern for the widow in the text. But where our worthiness for us today, it's not tied to our job or our house or our education. Our worthiness is not tied to our sexual orientation or our paycheck. It's not tied to what our children do or what they don't do. Our worthiness is not tied into how much we donate to NPR or where we went on vacation but we are worthy. We are worthy and loved and enough because we are God's children of the resurrection. The Sadducees, in paying attention to the widow's marriage record, were missing the point. And so often we, too, miss the point. We don't let ourselves believe this central truth of worthiness and enoughness that is foundational to the gospel, and that is so contrary to the messages of our world. But when we believe this truth, when we live as the resurrection people, then we're called to bring about that world for other people too. Yesterday was the marker of the 30th anniversary of the fall of the Berlin Wall, a literal boundary breaking where families once separated could again be united, where people were forced to live in scarcity and fear found abundance. And there are so many walls that we build, walls within ourselves, often out of shame or fear, and we build these walls to create illusions of control. There are so many walls that we build within our relationships and within our world, But I love that spray-painted on the Berlin Wall were these words. They said, this wall will fall and beliefs will become reality. These walls often appear for similar reasons. But when they are broken down, when we are able to be honest and vulnerable and generous with ourselves, with our neighbors, and with the world, 
then these beliefs that we hold as people of faith can become a reality. And we are truly living then as God's resurrection people. I pray that in this week and in all the weeks to come, we may live this way. I pray it for me and for all of you. Amen.